0: We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. Uh, We'll be back in Romans in a couple of weeks, but we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapters 11 and 12 this morning. Uh, As I read the passage this week, I was reminded of some family lore from my own family uh, from when I was growing up. We had a dog when I was really young, like two or three years old, by the name of Noah. Now, I don't remember Noah at all. Uh, But uh, the story's been told so many times that now I remember the story. Uh, Noah, I think, was some kind of a German shepherd mix, maybe a a German shepherd, like a full-blooded German shepherd. Uh, But the thing that I remember hearing about Noah was that from the time we brought him into our home, and I had two brothers, uh, from the time we brought him into our home, Noah hated children, which is a problem in a house with three young boys. One, uh, my younger brother was just a baby. I was maybe three, and then my older brother was five or six. And uh, my dad told us that Noah would growl at kids. Uh, When we had kids come over, he would hide in the bushes and growl and snap and and sometimes even try to chase kids around. And uh, yet, my dad said, we just loved Noah. We loved this dog. And as kids do, you don't always interpret well the signs that a dog is about to get aggressive, and so uh, you might go to hug that dog or pet that dog, even when that dog is growling and giving you every reason to back away. And so my dad kept the dog for a while uh, until he said one day he he was sitting at his desk and he looked out in the backyard and he saw uh, just kind of a blur go by the window, and when he looked more closely, he noticed that Noah uh, was dragging me around the backyard. Noah had grabbed me by the scruff of my shirt and was just pulling me along through the grass. So my dad uh, ran out and, of course, uh, extracted me from the dog's jaws, Uh, and at that point, it was pretty quickly after that that the dog disappeared. Uh, When we asked dad where did Noah go, uh, he told us that Noah went to a farm. And, uh, you know, I don't remember hearing that, but I do remember that for years we heard that Noah went to a farm. Uh, But as I grew up, I started thinking, uh, how did my dad find a farm for this dog? We lived in suburban Dallas, and, you know, there was no internet. Was there some sort of network of farmers that took on angry, aggressive dogs toward children? Like, I couldn't figure it out. So finally, as a young adult, I asked my dad, hey, how'd you find a farm for Noah? This had bothered me for decades. And my dad goes, oh, uh, it wasn't that Noah went to a farm. Noah bought the farm. (laughs) Right? Two very different things. Now, I've thought about that over the years, and and I've thought, you know, why was it that my dad felt the need to shield us from the reality of Noah's death? Well, because even though it was an aggressive dog, we loved that dog, and death is hard to grapple with. Even the death of a pet, is hard to grapple with, how much more the death of a person, and how much more the reality of our own approaching death. I wonder if you have ever sat at a funeral, for a loved one or, or a friend or an acquaintance, and as you're sitting there and the pastor or friends are talking about the person who is gone from this earth, have you ever had this thought, one day that'll be me? Almost all of us have had that thought. Because the reality is, if we're honest, we recognize that death hangs like a shadow over our lives, that we know it's approaching, and you would think that the knowledge of our approaching death would help us deal with it better, but in reality, it's still deeply painful and scary. As we lose those we love, and as we know that our time is one day coming. You know, it's interesting, when I, uh, when, when our kids were small, I would often read to them at night. And one of the books that I read to all three of our kids was the classic Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. One of my favorite children's novels. But but as you read it when you're an adult, you recognize that the, the shadow of death actually hangs over that book quite sharply. You know that by the end of that book, and I hope I'm not spoiling it, but by the end of that book, either the pig is going to die or the spider is going to die. You know it's coming, and yet every time I get to the end of the book, I cry. Because death is still painful, even when you know it's coming. And so a lot of times we don't want to talk about the reality of death because we would rather just push that off into the future and shield ourselves from it and shield other people from it. But here's what's remarkable. The Scripture does not shield us from thinking about and talking about the reality of death. In fact, the Scripture urges us to consider it, to think about it, to live in light of it. The Scripture tells us that the reality is that unless Jesus returns first, every single one of us will face the day of our own death. And on that day, we recognize that that whatever accomplishments we've built up will fade. Whatever we have in the bank won't matter. Whatever pleasures we have chased will fade into the background, all of it will fade away and go away. And I know right now you're like, man, happy new year, Matt. Like this this is a tough topic. But I bring it up because at the beginning of a brand new year, as the calendar rolls over into another year and then a year from now, The calendar will roll over again and again and again. Do we ever pause at the beginning of a new year to say, hey, the number of times that I will be here for another January and another January and another January, the number of times that will happen, it's finite. 70, maybe 80, maybe 90, if you're really fortunate, 100 or more. But it is finite so that all of us are facing this moment where we must reckon with the reality that the end of our lives is coming. The Scripture pushes us to address that, to deal with it. There's probably no book of the Bible that pushes us to deal with that more profoundly and directly than the book of Ecclesiastes. Written, we think, by King Solomon who was maybe arguably the greatest, wealthiest, most powerful king in all of Israel's history. He accumulated wealth. He accumulated wives. He accumulated pleasure. He accumulated fame. And yet here, toward the end of his life, he looks and he says, all of it is vanity. It is emptiness. It is pointless. Vanity. Vanity, says the teacher. That's the refrain that runs through this book. And so in light of that reality of death, Solomon asks, well, well, how do we live in light of the fact that we're going to die? How do we find meaning when so much of our lives seems vain? And so the essence of the book of Ecclesiastes is nothing on earth can satisfy our need for lasting significance. Now, we're not going to go through the whole book today. I'm going to major on chapters 11 and 12. But the idea is nothing on this earth, right? Not, not your job, not your prestige, uh, not making a name for yourself, not accumulating wealth, not pleasure, not even your family, not even your health. None of these things can satisfy your need for lasting significance. That's, that's really where Solomon takes us through the book. And then here he wraps up the book by saying, but God can't. Only God can. And where Solomon will take us is simply to recognize, he's going to say, remember your creator, to recognize that if God made you, he made you for a reason. And if God is in your life, that is because God wants you to live for a story that he has written And not for your own story. And the idea is that you and I are made for a particular purpose. To know God, to worship God, to reflect His character, and to help others to know God and worship God and reflect His character. Because all of us, in a sense, generation after generation after generation, we are all designed to know and honor and worship and reflect God. We live for His story. And so Solomon here at the end of the book is going to say... Are you going to live for his story? And the the refrain that will go through this passage a few times is remember your creator in the days of your youth. And we're going to talk about what that means. Some of you are like, I'm not young. This still applies to you. Trust me. But he's going to say remember your creator in the days of your youth. And he's going to say the best that you can do is live your life according to God's story rather than your story. Now, Solomon doesn't know yet what we know which is the end of the story. He doesn't yet know about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He doesn't yet know about eternal life being found in him. But what he does know is that God made the universe. God made me. God made you. And if God made us, he has a reason for our lives. And so rather than chasing those things that don't last, let us invest our lives in what is eternal. And so the question as as we're halfway through January, got 11 and a half months left in the year, is will you and I invest our lives in those things that will last for eternity or in those things that will fade away? If you consider how you spend your time or your money or your talent or your affections, are you spending it writing your story? that Solomon says leads to vanity and frustration and alienation between you and God? Or are you spending your time and your treasure and your talent and your affection investing in God's story that lasts forever? That's where he takes us. Right, so Solomon really uh, has worked through, and here, here's where he begins in this passage, but, but also throughout the book, as he says, again, we face this big problem. The problem is that we live in the shadow of death. We live in death's shadow. So uh, I'm going to get into chapter 11 in a minute, but, but again, all the way through the book, Solomon wrestles with this reality. Let me show you a couple of examples. This is from Ecclesiastes 3. He says, "I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them, in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same; as one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity or, or emptiness, purposelessness. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust." Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? Now, that's a depressing passage. But, but let me say for a minute, remember, Solomon doesn't yet know the whole story. And what he's wrestling with is what a lot of us maybe have wrestled with. You go, look, uh, whether you're a person or a dog or a horse or whatever it is, you're going to live for a certain period of time, you're going to die. And that's what he sees. And in his day and age, people weren't shielded from death. People often died at home. The infant mortality rate was much higher. People saw death all the time. And he says, okay, we come into this world and we leave this world quickly, as quickly as we come in. We we are from the dust. We go back to the dust. And so what are we going to do about that? And at times he sounds cynical, but he's grappling with this reality. Here's Ecclesiastes 9. It is the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. For the good, for the clean and the unclean, for the man who offers the sacrifice and the one who does not offer sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who's afraid to swear. So in other words, if you're rich or poor, you're religious, you're not religious, uh, you're well-known, you're obscure, right? Whatever it is, uh, you are going to die. It's the same. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. All right. So Solomon says, I'm not quite sure how this story is going to end, but I know that I'm going to die. Solomon is the most famous king, the wealthiest king, the most accomplished king. And he says in the end, I will die and the peasant will die. Both of us end in the same place. And a lot of people either try to deny that reality or, again, ignore that reality. Solomon had tried. And as you move through the book, you see he spends all his money and his time and his energy on pleasure and and on building palaces and on building his reputation and all of this to see if he can somehow cheat death. A few years ago, I read an article about billionaires who were investing their money in trying to cheat death, trying to find the secret to immortality. One of them was Larry Ellison, the billionaire founder of Oracle, the technology company. In the article, Larry Ellison says this, Death makes me very angry. It doesn't make any sense to me. Death has never made any sense to me. How can a person be there and then just vanish, just not be there? So he's spending his money to stop it. Ray Kurzweil, another uh, billionaire technologist, has invested money in what he calls a biotechnology revolution to create people who are partly composed of nanocomputers so that we can live forever. The idea is if we can just unlock the right technology, we can beat death. Now, I would say they're wrong because the only one who can defeat death is the one who created life. The only one who can overturn death is the one who has spoken life into existence. So you might be able to extend the lifespan, but you will never become immortal apart from the renewing breath of God through the power of his spirit. It will not happen. And so Solomon has to grapple with this reality. And so this is where we are as we approach chapters 11 and 12. Solomon says, look, I want you to do something. He says, you live in death's shadow, so what I want you to do is while you're young, I want you to rejoice in your youth. So look at verses 7 to 10 of chapter 11. Solomon says, the light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So, remove grief and anger from your heart, and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Really simple concept here. He says, look, every day that you wake up and see the sun, be happy. It's good to wake up and say, I'm still alive today. And especially while you're young. He goes, look, while you're young, chase your dreams. Yeah, pursue the desires of your life. Just know that God will also judge you for how you pursue your dreams and the desires of your life. But he says, "While you're young," and, and by the way, the idea of youth in the scripture is, is pretty fluid. So so you could be young even well up into your into your forties in the scripture, right? So so youth is a pretty flexible concept. But the idea is, while you're young, enjoy it, right? Uh, I'll, I'll I'll tell you this year I'm I'm going to be forty eight years old, right? So so I'm not young, but I'm not old, right? And so so I've noticed that that maybe I don't have quite as much energy as I did when I was, when I was 28, right? Things maybe don't, don't work as quickly or as well as when I was 35, right? And so every year on, on my birthday, of course, people say, what does it feel like to be another year older? People probably ask you that. What does it feel like to be another year older? We start asking our kids that when they're like seven. Do you feel seven? And they're always like, I don't know, right? Feels about the same as six, Right, but sometimes people will be like, what does it feel like to be another year older? How do you feel about, about growing older? And I always have started to say this. It's better than the alternative. Because you're either growing older or you're dead. Right? And that's what Solomon says. Every day that you wake up, you say, God, thank you for another day and another day and another day. But recognize that the days of your youth are fleeting. They don't last forever. They don't last long. And so the days of darkness, the days of futility, the days when you cannot function as you want to function are coming. Sometimes I watch my my son who is 14 years old playing outside with his friends, and he he can play football or run around for hours without running out of energy. I run out of energy much more quickly. Right? He jumps and he runs and he lifts and he does all of these things. And, and I find, and maybe you have found this, no matter uh, how much you try to eat well and stay in shape, you will have a day where you'll stand up from a chair and you'll find yourself going, as you stand up. It's going to happen. College students, high school students, you've heard your parents do that and you're like, where does that come from? We don't know. It just showed up one day. Right? It suddenly becomes effort to do things that used to be effortless. And so Solomon says, that day is coming. And he says, he goes on in chapter 12 then, and he says, because of that, verse 1, he says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Now, I'm going to come back to that phrase, remember your creator, in just a few minutes. But he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near When you will say, I have no delight in them, before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. So he says there's a day coming when life will not hold the same kind of delight, the same kind of joy, the same kind of energy as it does today. That day is on the way. And so he says, in light of that, when darkness is coming, all of us, if we live long enough, we are going to grow old to the point that it's difficult to function. And he's about to describe this. And so he says, before that day comes, I want you to remember your creator. But watch now what he does. He says, in the day, verse 3, that the watchmen of the house tremble. This is almost certainly a depiction of the arms and the hands as one grows older Most of us have experienced uh, having relatives who grow older or friends who grow older, and you notice the hands and the arms, they begin to shake. It says, before the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men, this is probably the legs, the mighty men begin to stoop. You begin to walk with a stoop. You're bent over in a way that you weren't before. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. You should recognize what this means. This is your teeth. They are idle because there aren't many left. If you go to the dentist this week, they will tell you to floss. And I encourage you to to floss. I recognize there's, I've always said there's two kinds of people in the world, flossers and non-flossers, and they usually marry one another. I historically have been a non-flosser, if I'm honest. But they'll say, hey, floss, because your teeth will last. But here's here's the reality. I read this this week. Uh, You know, you begin your adult life with usually 28 adult teeth, if you don't count your wisdom teeth, right? 28 teeth. Uh, By the time people are 80, on average, they have 11 left over, even with all of our medical care even with all of our dental care, even with the flossing, the teeth begin to fall out. And so Solomon says, the grinding ones are idle because there aren't many of them left. Eating might lose its pleasure and its joy because it's harder to chew. He says, those who look through the windows grow dim. This is your eyes. You begin to need corrective lenses that are stronger And stronger. Kids, if you see your parents reading a book like this, that's the onset. My mom told me several years ago, she saw my dad lying on his stomach on the edge of a bed in a hotel room, and he had the book down on the floor, and he was reading it from this distance. And she said, Where are your reading glasses? It's like I left them at home. This is the only way I can read it that far away. The the, the eyes begin to grow dim. He says, the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. Another reference to to your mouth. The lips begin to turn in because there aren't very many teeth to support them. And so the mouth is shut. One will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. What What a powerful image. He goes, look, you can't hear anything anymore, but you get up early. And you don't know why. And you hear the birds. Little sounds bother you, but you can't hear the sounds you're supposed to hear. So your your kid comes in or your grandkid and says, would you like chicken for dinner? And you say, what? The lotto is picking a winner. I didn't hear you. Right? The ears begin to go. And so he says, this is is what's going to happen. He goes, furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. In other words, things that used to not scare you now scare you. Some of you, your kids would freely jump off of this stage and they'd run along and they'd be fine. And you say, if I did that, I would be in the hospital. Things that used to be normal become fearful. The almond tree blossoms. This is a reference to the changing of our hair. I can vividly remember the first time one of my kids drew a picture of me and got out that silver crayon for my hair. We begin to change. The grasshopper drags himself along, begins to shuffle along. Your walk is not as confident, not as, as uh, brisk, but slower. The caperberry is ineffective. The caperberry uh, was uh, almost like a, an ancient sort of uh, energy sort of supplement, but also an aphrodisiac. It was meant to, to improve functioning. And he says it no longer works, not even the old tricks, right? And so he says everything begins to wear down, begins to fall apart. And then he says, for a man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. The day is coming. So he says, remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed, just images of destruction and death and devastation, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. He says, look, you can't control time. You can't stop time. If you're young now, know that you won't be young forever. If you you have Uh, physical vigor now, know that it will decline. If your mind is sharp today, know that the day is coming when your memory will begin to fade and you won't be able to think as quickly. All of these things that we depend upon, our bodies, our minds, our money, our jobs, there's a day coming when they'll fade away and we return to the dust. So we live in death's shadow. And so the question then that that hangs over this passage is what do we do about it? And here's what Solomon says. He he goes, here's the solution. Here's here's what I've come to in light of it. I want you to put your hope in God. If nothing on the earth is going to bring lasting significance, then I want you to put your hope in God. In God, and so again, he says, "Remember your Creator in the days of your youth." Now, now, when we think about remembering, we think about it like like it's a fact that we're gonna that we're gonna write down, right? So, so uh, the way that maybe I handled science tests when I was in high school, I would write it all down on a card and I would cram it into my brain. And I would remember it for the test. And then the next day I would forget. It had no impact on my life. So that 30 years later when my kids ask me about the same fact, I go, I don't know. I probably never learned that. Or if I did, I don't remember. That's not what Solomon means by remember. Biblically, to remember means to act on behalf of what you remember. So... When God remembers people throughout the scripture, for example, in Genesis 8, after the flood, as Noah and his family are on top of Mount Ararat and the waters are high, the scripture says God remembered Noah, and what happens? He made the waters recede. All right, if you go to Habakkuk chapter 3, the prophet calls out to God, he says, God, remember us. And deliver us from the Chaldeans. To remember is to act. You remember Samson, the story of Samson in Judges chapter 16. As Samson has been blinded by the Philistines and captured. And he's chained uh, in this uh, palace. And he says, oh God, remember me one last time. And strengthen me. And so God acts on his behalf and his strength returns. And he pushes over those columns and brings the building down. To remember is to act. When people remember God, we obey. We obey, right? So in in Psalm 106, verse 7, the psalmist says that the people failed to remember God, and so they failed to obey him. Or Psalm 119, verse 55, that says, God, when I remember you in the night, I keep your commandments. I remember and I act. I remember and I obey. This is what Solomon is getting at in Ecclesiastes when he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. What is he encouraging us to do? Not just to think about God, but to say that the essence of my life is found in the purposes of God for me. That as I remember who he is, that he made me, that he designed the universe, that he has a purpose for my life, now I want to orient my life not around my own story, my own purposes, my own power, my own glory, but around God's. That I say, I live for him. I will remember him, and therefore, if God has told me to live in a certain way, I'm going to live in that way because the best life that I'm going to have is a life that is aligned with the priorities of my maker, with the purpose of my maker, to know him, to worship him, to proclaim him. And so Solomon says, look, I've tried it all, right? I've tried it all. I have tried money. I have tried pleasure. I have tried power. I have tried everything All of it was vanity, vanity, vanity. None of it led anywhere. And so the best that we can do, he says, remember your creator. Don't wait until you're old. He says, today is the day to remember him. Because we live in the shadow of death, don't wait until your strength is gone. Don't put it off is basically what he's saying. He's saying, look, I've already already tried it all. He says, look, the the best wisdom is not the wisdom gained through experience, right? Because the wisdom gained through experience often brings pain. The best wisdom, Solomon would say, is the wisdom you can gain from somebody else's experience. Where you look at that person and you go, oh, wow, that worked for them. Maybe that would work for me. Or that really didn't work for them. So I won't go that pathway. Right? The wise person pays attention to the lives of others, and Solomon says, here's my experience, right, uh, the greatest career is going to mm-hmm. fade away. I thought it was interesting, I believe it was Wednesday that Nick Saban, the coach of Alabama, announced his retirement, right, and, and some would argue the greatest coach in the history of college football, whether you agree with that or not, I mean, great coach, multiple national titles, extremely well-known, announced his retirement on Wednesday. How long did it take for them to hire another coach and stencil a new name on the door? Two days, two days. And the world moves on. And it'll move on when we're gone as well. And so Solomon says, look, I've tried living for all of that. Let me tell you the, the conclusion of the matter. And he says this in verses 13 to 14, the conclusion When all has been heard is to fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Remember him in the days of your youth. Now, what Solomon didn't know, as we said earlier, is the end of the story. He doesn't know yet. Yet. The reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to destroy death once and for all so that all who believe in him can have eternal life. Solomon didn't have all of that information. He's operating with the best that he has under the inspiration of the Spirit. And the best that he has is he says God has a purpose for our lives and that is true. And so the best we can do is to to reverence and obey God and obey his commandments. But we know, of course, the end of the story. And so I think if Solomon were to write this again today, he would say, yes, remember your creator in the days of your youth, but also I want you to remember how the story ends. And the reason we want to remember how the story ends is because we now have the hope that if I invest my life in the things that matter to God and to his kingdom, those are things that will outlive me. Those are things that will last beyond my death. In other words, if I invest in worshiping God and reflecting God with my life, Then others around me will see and hopefully understand that there is a God in heaven who loves us, who rules the universe, who came so we can have eternal life. If I invest my time and my energy and my resources not in writing my own story, but in telling others about the story of God and who he is, they can come to know him and live with him eternally. And worship him forever. And the idea is that you and I get to be a link in a chain from generation to generation to proclaim the glory and the grace of God to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation because God wants to write a story of men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who are worshiping him around the throne. And so the best I can do with my life is to invest all that I have in that story. And as the the Old Testament even moves on, we see hints of this story, this ending, beginning to show up. So Isaiah chapter 65, this was hundreds of years after Solomon's death. The prophet Isaiah, he, he wrote, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. Solomon wrestled with those questions in Ecclesiastes, the death of the young, the the, the premature death of the old. He says, they'll build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Trees can live a long time. They will not labor in vain. Notice that, there it is. Their labor, their work won't be emptiness, won't be vanity, or bear children for calamity. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. Isaiah says the day is coming when God will renew creation and his people who know him will live lives of meaning and purpose and joy and worship forever and ever. Now, this should remind you of Revelation 21 and 22 because John in the book of Revelation picks up the words of Isaiah and he says, this is what I saw. I saw what Isaiah predicted, a new heavens, a new earth, no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering, no more death forever and ever and ever. And all that we do to be a part of God's story rather than our own pours into eternity. And so I think if Solomon were writing today, he would say, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't wait until tomorrow or a year from now because you don't know that you've got tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now. When we're young, we believe that time is infinite in our lives. He says it's not. Today is the day. Today is the day to remember your creator. And so again, as we, as we round into a new year, let me ask a couple of questions this morning. First of all, do you find your life's meaning in, in God? In God's story? If you came this morning and you don't yet know God through Jesus Christ, Solomon's words and, and the scripture's words to us this morning is that you can know that your life will have eternal significance, but also that you will have, eternal life if you trust in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life because he paved the way to defeat death. The shadow of death that hangs over our lives does not have to hold sway over our lives because Jesus overturned it. And the day will come when Jesus will return, the dead will rise, and the new heavens and the new earth will arrive. So do you find your life's meaning in him? In him. Or are you finding it somewhere else? In the, the glory of your own reputation or name? Or maybe the success of your kids and your grandkids. You're like, if I can just get them through college and make them successful. Or maybe the size of your bank account or the pleasures that you chase with your life. You just say, I just want to, I just want to enjoy things. I just want to have fun. And that may not be wrong to have fun, but is that the meaning and the purpose? of your life, what is it? Are you living for your story or God's? And then are you investing your life in eternity? Are there there people that you know that would say that you've poured into their lives for the sake of eternity? People who will, will last forever, who worship God and know God and know Jesus because of your life, people who know him better, Because of your life. Does your own life reflect who he is? Because that's what we're made for. Philip Yancey, in his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, he put it this way. The Christian story insists that history is, in lurches and detours, moving to a resolution. Every spark of beauty, worth, and meaning that we experience in this strange existence glimmers as a relic of a good world that still bears marks of its original design. Every twinge of pain, anxiety, cruelty, and injustice is a relic of the fall away from that design. And every demonstration of love, justice, peace, and compassion is a movement toward its ultimate redemption. The idea is, as we reflect the character of God and Jesus Christ, we're reflecting either our story of selfishness, greed, sinfulness, and self glory, or God's story of redemption and peace and joy. Are you investing your life in eternity? Which story do we want to write? Which story do we want to be a part of? Do you find your life's meaning in God? Are you investing your life in eternity? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. What a challenging passage this is and and hard to grapple with, the reality of death. We all know that if your son, Jesus Christ, doesn't return first, we all will face that day. So help us live well in light of that reality, not in fear, not in panic, but in trust to remember you, to fear God and keep his commandments, and to know that there is a way to live a life of eternal significance, to know you, to love you and worship you, and to proclaim and reflect you to the world. Let us focus our lives on what matters for eternity rather than what will fade away. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.